I mentioned that in this week's passage from Jeremiah, the prophet gets real with God, uncomfortably real, in fact. The mission on which God has sent Jeremiah to deliver God's dark words of judgment to his fellow Judeans has left Jeremiah miserable. It's ruined friendships, made him an outcast, even gotten him arrested. And in this remarkable passage, Jeremiah takes things up with God himself. We're going to read Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 10, then pick it up again at verses 15 through 21. So listen for God's word in what turns into a rather unsettling conversation. Verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you ever bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. And continuing on in verse 15. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me, and bring down retribution for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, do not take me away. Know that on your account I suffer insults. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of merrymakers, nor did I rejoice. Under the weight of your hand, I sat alone." For you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Truly, you are to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you turn back, I will take you back and you will stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall serve as my mouth. It is they who will turn to you, not you who will turn to them. And I will make to you this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. So every year, the job search website, Indeed.com, publishes a list. And it is taken from the extensive data that they have. And it's a list of the 10 career fields that report the most job satisfaction. These are the 10 happiest kinds of workers. For instance, this last year in 2019, they reported among the top, the top 10 um, physical therapist, flight attendant, welder, firefighter, and chiropractor. One thing I noticed though, as I read through those lists of the 10 happiest career paths, the 10 happiest kinds of workers in our economy is one that was conspicuously missing, that of Old Testament prophet. <laughs> Nowhere on the list. What is that about? Well, apparently, not only is the pay not all that competitive, but it's clear from 
the book that one of these Old Testament prophets left us, I'm talking about Jeremiah, that there are some inherent things, some structural things inherent to this particular career that again and again seem to cause considerable employee dissatisfaction. And one of these negative factors, chief among them in fact, is that almost by definition to be a prophet of God means to occupy one corner of this massive and perpetually awkward triangle. What do I mean by this? Well, there's the prophet on one side of the triangle, and then there's two other sides. Well, who is over here? Well, pretty much everybody you know if you are a prophet. Your neighbors, and your friends, and your coworkers, and your extended family, and the community leaders, and they all revile you. They all detest you for the things that your job description requires you to say to them. In their eyes, you are cruel, you are judgmental, you are disloyal, you are treacherous, you are even a traitor to the nation. So that's one corner. And then you got this other corner, and in this other corner is, well, the creator of the universe, God himself with whom contact on any day is a little bit unsettling, but if you're a prophet of God, that contact is with a God who is, to put it mildly, angry. To put it more accurately, is furious with rage. A God who is done with patience. A God who has moved on to judgment. And because this God happens to be the Lord of armies and empires and history, has some rather destructible tools at his, disposable, at his disposal, at the service of his white-hot anger. So there is this awkward triangle. And if you read any of the books, the various books of prophets that they've left us in the Old Testament, you will find that this job dissatisfaction is pretty much a constant. But in the other prophets, you kind of need to read between the lines to find out about it. Not... Jeremiah. More than any of the other prophets, Jeremiah tells us in absolutely clear terms just what he thinks about this job that he has been given, and it's basically take this job and, well, you can fill in the rest. That is clear from this first verse of the passage that Meg just read. Where Jeremiah says, Woe is me, my mother, that you ever even bore me. This is a guy who could use some career counseling, right? So our passage this morning is one of seven short first-person memoir poems. And these are characteristic and unique to the book of Jeremiah. We're just choosing one, and this is from chapter 15, and we're using it as a sample of these seven particular passages. And traditionally, if you read commentaries, these are known as the confessions of Jeremiah. Except he's not really confessing anything. He's not confessing sins. He's not confessing his own faith. So a better term might be Jeremiah's complaints or Jeremiah's laments or maybe even his job dissatisfaction rants, which would be disconcerting enough, but each of these seven complaint poems 
are actually written as direct address to God, which means they are prayers. But they are prayers of deep hurt and frustration and anger and accusation. In a word, these are confrontation with God. It is on your account, O God, that I suffer insults. Now, if you read the entire book of Jeremiah, you will discover that Jeremiah has an editor. He has an assistant, Baruch, who it seems, apparently, is the one who is recording and arranging Jeremiah's spoken poetic oracles into the literary text that we now have in our Bibles. And I could imagine Baruch giving his boss some editorial advice. Boss, I could hear Jeremiah saying, I really think that you should leave these lament poems out of the final edition of your book. Now, I know that they express what you feel inside. I get that. But I don't think your readers are really going to know what to do with these poems. I mean, direct confrontation with God? Really? Jerry, these poems, they're, they're borderline blasphemous. They are sacrilegious. They're just disturbing. If you leave them in, you're going to end up with a stained reputation, which is pretty much what happened. To this day, in fact, there is an English noun named after Jeremiah. It's not one that we use a whole lot, but you'll run into it from time to time. A Jeremiad. A Jeremiad is a long, mournful complaint. It is a list of woes. And by including his original Jeremiads in his final book, Jeremiah did end up earning himself a reputation. He even earned a nickname. Jeremiah is known as the Weeping Prophet. And that's reflected in Rembrandt's famous painting that you can see in the background of this slide. All because Jeremiah insisted on including these seven unsettling laments in his book. Laments which then countless generations of scribes copied as part of the biblical text so that each one of us, when we carry around our Bibles, are actually carrying around the words of these seven rather audacious confrontations with God. Now, I suppose that it's possible that the Holy Spirit, whose hand guided the formation of the Bible that we now have, made a mistake allowing these seven poems to get through the editorial filter. But I don't think so. Instead, I want to suggest this morning that these seven unsettling poems in which Jeremiah pretty much has it out with God, rather counterintuitively model for us what an authentic relationship with God looks like. Or to put it another way, what it means to get real with God. That doesn't mean that these poems are easy to read. They are kind of unsettling. And I think they are unsettling because we much prefer faith stories with a positive trajectory. Faith stories that go from bad to good. 
it's that classic sequence of the testimony, right? This is the way things were before, and now, because of God, things are so much better. But Jeremiah's laments actually go in the opposite direction. They have a narrative arc, but it's an arc from good to bad. You could almost call them anti-testimonials. And you can see it here in phrases that I've lifted from verses 16 and then 17 and then 18 of our passage. First, Jeremiah looks back to the beginning and he says, Back then, God, your words were to me a joy. They were a delight. I was so eager that I ate them up. I ate up the words you gave me to say. But along the way, Jeremiah discovered something that you might have discovered. That the life of faith is not always easy. It's not always smooth. That obedience to God can be lonely. And so, Jeremiah tells God, I, I gave up a lot. I did not sit in the company of merrymakers. This identity that you gave me, God, it alienated me from my friends. It meant that I did not fit in at the party. I sat alone. Jeremiah poignantly tells God. In fact, it was a lot worse than that. Because of the words that God insisted that Jeremiah deliver, the leaders of Jerusalem had him beaten numerous times, had him put in stocks in the market, had him imprisoned in this deep, empty water cistern. He barely survived a plot by his own extended family to have him killed. I played by the rules, God. I obeyed you. I did everything you asked. Why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable. Jeremiah finds himself at a crossroads, not sure he can even go on. Everything that he thought following God meant has turned upside down. And none of the easy answers are working. And for all of his faithfulness, all he has is pain. He finds himself in a crisis of faith, not sure which direction to go. Odds are that some of you know what that feels like. Last week I talked about wintry Christians. Those for whom faith is not all sunshine and flowers. Who sometimes experience God's absence as much as God's presence. But maybe for you, like for Jeremiah in this particular passage, it's not so much that God is absent but that God's very presence in your life, your faithfulness to the direction that you heard God telling you to go, um, seems to have brought you more suffering, not less. You look back and you can remember when your relationship with God just made sense, when obedience brought blessing, when following God made life easier, when it made it better, but now it is hard to see what God is up to at all in your life. Maybe it's the unceasing pain in your marriage after years of prayer. Maybe it is the seemingly unanswered prayers for your adult child. Maybe it's the grief or the depression that God just doesn't seem to take away. It could be the continued failure that you experience at work, or the seemingly pointless suffering of a dear friend. 
if that's what your relationship with God honestly feels like at this moment, then what sort of prayer is most authentic to that experience? Is it cheerful, pious, happy prayer? No, that's not authentic. In that moment, Scripture models for us getting real with God, saying what's really on your heart, even having it out with God, because that's what a real, authentic relationship looks like. This might be news to you, but the Bible gives us permission to be honest with God, to be frank, to be real, to raise our hands in frustration as much as raising our hands in praise. Though perhaps we shouldn't be surprised because it's right there in the central origin story of God's people. The moment that God bestowed on his people their defining name, Israel, came in the morning after Jacob spent all night doing what? Wrestling with God, which is exactly what that new name Israel means. He who wrestles with God. Well, Scripture contains all sorts of straightforward praise and pious devotion. It also contains a good deal of faithful people wrestling with God. Forty-some psalms of lament or the bewildering books of Ecclesiastes or Job. But in all of the Bible, I'm not sure you'll find a prayer more contentious than verse 18 of this morning's passage from Jeremiah. Now, remember, this is a prayer. This is a direct address to God. And this is a verse in the Bible. And what does Jeremiah say to God? You are to me like an oxav. And that's a Hebrew word which literally means liar, but apparently also refers to a tricky brook that dries up in the desert when you really need it. You, God, are like waters that fail. You're like an undependable stream that disappears on me. Can you say that to God? Back in the campus ministry in Colorado where Debbie and I got to know each other, we had a cheeky gesture that we'd sometimes make, and it was a modification. I don't you remember, know if you remember the L for loser forehead sign that was popular back then. Well, we changed it, we modified it, and it was a lightning bolt to the head <laughs> that we would use to acknowledge that we were saying something that edged dangerously close to blasphemy. Well, perhaps Jeremiah should have made that sign as he prayed this prayer. Or a similar prayer, a few chapters later, Jeremiah 27. And this is when Jeremiah was imprisoned in that cistern. He prays, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. Again, can you say that to God? Apparently, you can. What's interesting to me is the two things that God does not do in response. First, God does not strike Jeremiah dead with a lightning bolt. He doesn't even cast him off. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't reject him as his prophet. And the reason, I think, is that God honors Jeremiah's words as authentic prayer. God knows these are words coming from Jeremiah's heart. 
It is how Jeremiah feels inside, and God welcomes him, expressing it. God appreciates the honesty. I think God prefers this to simpering phoniness or to empty pleasantries. God wants a real, honest relationship with Jeremiah and with us. And yet, at the same time, God doesn't concede that Jeremiah's got things right. If Jeremiah is getting real with God, well, God gets real with Jeremiah right back. This is how uh, Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on Jeremiah called A Run With Horses, puts it. Jeremiah's part in this prayer was to be honest and personal. It is God with whom he has to do, and the first requirement in a personal relationship is to be ourselves. Off with the masks. Away with the pretense. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord. Jeremiah's prayer is not pious, not nice, not proper. He speaks what he feels, and he feels scared and lonely and hurt and angry. Well enough. God's part in the prayer, though, is to restore and to save. Before God in prayer, we do not remain the same. The fright and the loneliness and the pain and accusation are all there, but they do not stay there. Part, though not all, of what Jeremiah was doing was feeling sorry for himself on his knees. God feels our pains, but he does not indulge our self-pity. God is severe with Jeremiah as Jeremiah was severe with the people. Repent, turn away from that kind of feeling, for it is destructive, God says. Then I will restore you, and you will stand upright, ready to serve again in my presence. God honors Jeremiah's honesty by being brutally honest with him. Yes, God says to Jeremiah, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it will continue to be hard. My disobedient people are going to keep fighting against you, so I'm not going to promise you that things are going to turn fun real soon. But here's what I do promise you. They will not prevail over you. I will provide the strength you need for each day. I will not abandon you. And God's response to Jeremiah features a fourfold play on a Hebrew word. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the word shuv. And it means return. And if you remember, I mentioned that this is one of Jeremiah's favorite words. He uses it 23 times in his book. Well, four of those occurrences are actually in this one verse, verse 19, and I put them in gold. If you, Jeremiah, turn, if you shuv, if you return to me... If you return to the road on which I've had you walking, I will shove to you. Literally, I will let myself be returned to you. You shall stand before me, God says. If you utter what is precious, not the worthless things that people want you to say, you will continue to be my mouth. If you do this, God says, uh, continuing on the wordplay with shove, something remarkable will happen. Eventually, even though it doesn't look like it now, the words I give you will penetrate the people's stubborn hearts. It will soften them, and they will be the ones turning to you, not you turning to them and their compromise and their despair. 
And as God sends Jeremiah beyond the crossroads of this crisis of faith, as he sends him on down the road of obedience into God's future, into a path of discovery, God says one more thing to him. And it is a beautiful, intimate promise. And I can't help think that it means more to Jeremiah because he has dared to open his whole heart, good and bad, to God. Because he has taken the risk of getting real with God. What God says to Jeremiah as he sends him back on the road of obedience is the same thing that Jesus says to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. And therefore says to us, I will be with you. I am with you. I'm convinced that truth becomes more real to us the more we're willing to get real with God.